Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Hey, we'll take a, a look at some different scriptures this morning, so we don't just have one uh, particular passage we're going to dwell in, but we will we will be in Hebrews 11. We're going to look at Romans 4 first, Romans 4, Hebrews 11, Genesis 12. If uh, you know your passages, you know that today we're going to talk a little bit about Abraham. I think he's a model for a life of faith, and as we um, continue in our, our uh, pursuit of God, Abraham's a great role model for that. So we want to take a look to him, all right? So if you want to turn to Romans 4, that'd be a great place to start. I do want to mention that we have Besides um, Isla being here today as a new baby, we also have Madeline Grace. We have two Graces, Madeline Grace and Isla Grace, who are here today, and that's Troy and Sierra's baby. I don't know where Troy and Sierra are. They may be in the nursery at the moment. Oh, yep, wave back there. So if you haven't got to say hello, that would be great. Man, we're, g- we're growing as a church. Someday the youth group's going to be busting at the seams. We've got a great youth group. But someday I think we're going to have to switch the adults for the students. The adults might be, uh, the students might outnumber the adults at that point. I don't know. All right. Let's, uh, let's, uh, think about Abraham as a model of faith this morning. You might wonder why we would choose an Old Testament figure for a model of faith for us as New Testament Christians. And I, w- I want to just say that even though Abraham was an Old Testament believer, He's a great example of our faith for at least four reasons. One is that he's prominent in the Old Testament. And how many of us here today would acknowledge the Old Testament is part of our Christian Bible? Amen. All right, good. It's good that we're all on the same page. We don't just have the New Testament. We also have the Old Testament. It's a prominent part of our Bible. And then the second reason is is that he is used as a model by Paul in Romans and Galatians, by the writer of Hebrews. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 11 in particular, do you know of all the members of the Hall of Faith, it talks more about Abraham than of any other member in the Hall of Faith. And so then we also see him in the book of James as one who honored God with his obedience. And then I think a third reason is, is that he precedes the most troublesome part of the relationship between the Old Testament and the New. What am I talking about? What's the most troublesome part of the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The law. He precedes that. In fact, that's that's one of the arguments that Paul is making in Romans is that before the law ever came, Abraham was justified by faith, not by works. Okay? So then we see that he precedes that and so he's an example of faith that is not just lived through the law. Certainly there's obedience. And, and by the way, before we move on, I want to mention that when God called Abraham, he said, walk before me and be pure. So it wasn't a call to some kind of anti-law kind of living. He, he still had to be blameless before God in his walk. The fourth reason is, is that he's known as the father of the faithful. So he's the father. He's the one that is like the, uh, the, the model or the picture of what a life of faith should look like. There are some differences between between Abraham's faith and ours. One of them is is that um, he was still operating still under the sacrificial system. He offered sacrifices as a way to worship God. It hadn't been fully developed in the law yet, but he 
sacrificed animals and let the, the smoke rise as a way of, of picturing his worship to the Lord. And then a, a second way that he's different than us is that Abraham, as far as I know, didn't experience the full effects of regeneration the way that we do in the New Testament. Okay, so he lived by faith. I think God granted him favor in response to that. But there's something different that happens in the New Testament when we trust in Christ because of the work on the cross. The, the Holy Spirit helps us to be born again and to live a new life in Christ. That's, that's looked forward to in the book of Jeremiah, that this is going to come. And so we have regeneration. And then we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, noting those differences, I want to make the point that it's incredible that Abraham shouldn't have all of those things going for him, and yet he was such a great example of faith, and in many ways his faith outperforms a lot of our faith. And so that's kind of incredible to me, and yet it's beautiful, and it ought to challenge us a little bit that with the help of the Holy Spirit, oh, and one other thing, he didn't have the written scriptures the way that we do. And so having to live by faith in that kind of scenario, it ought to challenge us to want to rise above mediocrity and living for God. And uh, here's something else I want to mention as we pass into our first point is that I think uh, the way that the Bible focuses on big events, we sometimes get the impression that every day is filled with some kind of wonder and there's no... There's no regular Thursdays in the Bible. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You know, like after you go home from church and you've been worshiping the Lord and you're excited about worshiping the Lord, and then you go home and then there's Monday, and you got to go back to work and you're not feeling it. Can you relate to that a little bit? The Bible often doesn't seem to describe that. It's going from one big thing to the next because it's describing in short detail big moments in salvation's history. And so... One of the things that can be a side effect of that is that we get the impression that that's the way life in God is. And it's not the fault of the Bible. It's more a fault of our understanding or lack of understanding that there are everyday kind of Thursdays in the Christian walk that are mundane where faith needs to be lived out, where we need to continue to rest upon the promise that God has given us yesterday while we're not receiving perhaps any new revelation today. Does that make sense? I think that's really important because sometimes we're like we're looking for the next new word and we're like addicts anticipating or hungering for or yearning for some kind of new word from God when we're really not living the old word. We need to cling to that and let God develop deep spirituality. I think um, Abraham's an example of that. Uh, which I'll, I'll come to in a moment. I think that can be a disservice to us that we have these ordinary, ordinary days of work and walking, trusting and praying. There's one patch of Scripture where it seems that Abraham may not have received a word from the Lord in 13 years. Think of that. I can't prove that, but there is a, it seems to be a period of silence where it jumps from one word to the next, and 13 years have passed. And what that tells me is if if we just take that as at its face value is that there may be a long time between legitimate words from God. And what do we do in response to that? I think that we continue in what God has last said because God is faithful and he's not abandoned us just because we're not receiving new revelation every minute. Do you know that there is revelation that we can go to anytime we want? 
It's right here. But often that's not, uh, that's not spectacular enough for us. That's too ordinary and everyday. But I think that's a lot of where li- life is lived out. Uh, so what did Abraham do? Uh, he continued to believe God and obey and to live in light of the, the same word that he received before. Um, now, you know, he was probably getting anxious to see the promise fulfilled, and he may have even started to invent ways that God was going to do it in his mind, but he continued to trust that God was going to fulfill the promise in one way or another. And so that brings us to our first verse, Romans chapter 4, verse 18. I'm not preaching from a, a single text this morning. I want to uh, drop in on some different verses and and make a case here for a way to live for God within our context. The first thing that I want to mention here is that he believed against hope. And if you want to be, I think if we want to be strong believers in today's world, we have to believe against hope. What does that mean? Does it mean we don't believe in hope? No. It says something very specifically here in Romans 4.18. Against all hope, Abraham believed in hope, or Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. So there are a lot of things in Abraham's life that didn't look possible. Okay, can you relate to that? Maybe God has promised you something that doesn't look possible. Or you look at the vision of faith that's set out for us in the New Testament, like that we don't have to be domineered by sin. Or maybe it's that God is going to flip the power structure upside down. Some of those things don't look possible, or even that Jesus is coming back. You know, there's a, a scoffer statement in the New Testament that says, day after day, we've been waiting. Where is his coming? That's what people were beginning to ask, and maybe a whisper of that has found its way into our mind. And So some things don't look possible, but this is where Abraham shines because he believes against hope. And what that means is, as I said, that there are a lot of things that didn't look possible. One, descendants as numerous as the sand and the stars. He's like, he got that promise. Do you know when he got that promise? When he was old and lived a whole lifetime without any kids. That looks impossible. Like, God, how are you going to do that? That seems to be believing against hope. So then we see as well that he was promised a land which he went to, which turned out to be possessed by Canaanites. And they're not packing their bags. God promised him that land. And it looked impossible. Like, you're going you're gonna to fulfill your promise to me, but everything looked contrary to that. Everywhere Abraham went in all of his years, there were Canaanites, except when he went to Egypt. There were Canaanites all around him. And in fact, uh, Stephen says he never, he never received that promise not even a foothold. The only thing he did is he purchased a little plot of land where he buried his wife. That's all that he got was a little bitty piece of land that he purchased, like a, like a title deed or like a, a guarantee or a down payment upon the great promise of God that would come later on that God would give him. Not that he would purchase, that God would give to his descendants, but that looked hopeless. Why believe in that? Abraham, that sounds ridiculous. I don't know if you've noticed this, but a lot of times the position of faith seems ridiculous from the outside. Okay, Imagine uh, Noah building an ark when they've not seen rain in that area. Noah, what are you doing? 
Well, I'm building a boat. What do you need a boat for? It's going to rain. What's rain? Right? It's not rain like that before. They have, they have uh, mist that comes up from the ground like dew that took care of the crops in those days. And so not having seen rain before, he continued to build. And not just like, not just like week upon week, let me ask you this. How long does it take before you'd get discouraged in being faithful? Noah was faithful for years and years and years. And everybody in his neighborhood, supposing they had neighborhoods, said, there's crazy Noah. What's he doing? Building that boat again. Crazy. Abraham, you said you're going to get this land as a promise? That's crazy. Sounds crazy. Now, I want to make a quick distinction here. I think this is important. You've probably heard me say this before. Trusting in God is not illogical. Logic is rules of cause and effect and understanding what things are not absurd. It seems illogical, but that's only because we don't have all the evidence. Once you factor in a God of impossibilities, all things are possible, and it's not illogical. It's not absurd. God is not absurd. Everything he does makes sense. We just don't always know the reasons. So I'm always... I'm always kind of a, a little bit offended when people say trusting God's illogical. It's not. It's perfectly logical when you consider who he is and what he can do. It makes sense. We just don't have all the pieces. You ever figured something out in your mind and it seemed like it all worked out and you got another piece of information and blew your theory out of the water? That's exactly what this is like. Plug God into the equation and different things start to make sense. Trusting God makes sense in a world in which God is a God of impossibilities. So he, he trusted the Lord and also a legacy which would change the world. Through your seed, all the nations we bless. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3, I think it's Galatians 3, it says there that God preached the gospel to Abraham ahead of time, saying through your seed, all the nations will be blessed. So somewhere there's this preaching of the gospel, and I think what it was was this indication that there's going to come a future descendant through whom all the people of the world who want to will come back into right relationship with God. And so there's this legacy that somehow his life and uh, his, his uh, descendant would bring about global change and an attitude towards God, and, that, and, that, and that's true. People all over the world are trusting in Jesus. And Abraham had the audacity to believe that when he didn't even have a single descendant. He believed against hope. That's, that's audacious, I think. It's not illogical. It's audacious. And it looked like there was no hope, but he still clung to hope. And I think that's the meaning of this verse, that he believed against hope, and he believed in hope, because it seemed like from, in one definition of hope that this would never work out. But in the other definition of hope, he he, he's clinging to something that he knows that God can do. It wasn't unreasonable that the God who creates all things by the power of his word could fulfill it. If you look back at verse 17 here, it says, um, sorry, I'm not, even, I'm not even at that spot anymore. Romans, it says that the God, well, forgive me. Okay, here we are says, he is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. 
the God who gives life to the dead and who calls into being things that were not. You probably heard the KJV version of that, uh, calling things that uh, are not as though they were. Okay? Sometimes people like to uh, bring that into their own personal action, but this is talking about what God does. God's the one who calls things that are not as though they were. So he trusted in that. He trusted in that promise. God had promised him these things will happen. So the right response for Abraham is to believe even against hope. God would fulfill his promise. Now, we should make another distinction here between invented hopes and given hopes. Are you following me? Invented hopes and given hopes. Because some people take this like the Disney song, When You Wish Upon a Star. Have you ever uh, thought about the lyrics to that? When you wish upon a star, it makes no difference who you are. Anything your heart desires will come to you. Is that true? No, it's not. <laughs> God help us not to write theology out of our Disney songs. Right? Listen, that is not true. That's invented hopes. That's where we say, this is what I want, and then we're going to really believe God strongly enough for it, and we apply the... Uh, the worldly maxim that anything you believe hard enough will come true. That's not true. The reason Abraham could put his faith in something is that he had a given hope. God had promised already, and so he was resting upon that promise. So there's a big difference here. The difference with Abraham is the object of his hope was not invented by him, but given by God. God might place dreams in your heart and things that you may hope will happen, and sometimes they do, and maybe sometimes they don't, or maybe sometimes God's given you something for a future generation that you're not going to see yourself. And that was true a little bit here about Abraham as well. But he could believe here because he knew the God who could do it. And I think faith like this is relational as much as it is rational. You see, we can work out theologically that God is omnipotent, which means what? What does omnipotent mean? all-powerful. We can work that out theologically from Scripture and say, man, God is big and He's all-powerful. It's another thing, I think, to say that conviction, with conviction that God is all-powerful, He can do anything in my life. That's relational because we understand that those things come through relationship with Him. Say the conviction comes because we know God. At times, you're going to have to believe against all natural hope. And you're going to have days where your emotions swell and they overwhelm. I think one of the biggest obstacles of faith in our world, because we've lived after the period of romanticism and existentialism, those isms have brought emotions to the forefront and made them our guides. Okay, So listen, the biggest challenge to our faith is going to be how we feel. That's going to be the biggest challenge, okay? Not even so much what culture says. It's how we feel at any given moment. And I know this is true because in pastoring, I've talked to people countless times that feel they're not close to God, even though there's no sin particularly in their life, maybe, maybe, doubt, maybe doubt, but there's nothing in particular in the life that should suggest to me that they're not in relationship with God. They're just not feeling it that day. Can, can I tell you? Feelings are not our leaders, okay? Feelings are important, but we need to bring our feelings into alignment with what God has said. 
This is the calling of faith. Sometime, I dare you to do this. Next time you're not feeling it, tell your feelings, I'm not listening to you. I'm trusting the Lord. So we're going to have those struggles against natural hope. Is life in God worth living? Is it worth the cost of giving up our lives? Or should we abandon all holiness and live for ourselves? That's a, that's a question of faith. That's a question of hope. And Abraham, I believe, answered that question when he walked off from Ur and went to the promised land and served the Lord. The second thing I want to mention that's characteristic of Abraham is that he obeyed promptly. He obeyed promptly. The first thing is he believed against hope. Okay? It didn't look like he should. Maybe there were a lot of things from a natural perspective that didn't look like it was going to work out, but he knew he'd heard from God, and there must be a reason, so he's going to trust him. But then that led him to the second thing is that, and this is tied to faith too. Every one of these is tied to faith, but believing against hope should lead to prompt obedience. Prompt obedience. Hebrews 11 verse 8, if you'd like a reference on this, says, By faith Abraham, when he called, he was called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. He obeyed promptly. The word obeyed here uh, is related to the word hear. You might, you might be surprised by this. You might not. But to obey means that we've heard something, and then we got to do it. Okay. Are you with me? Okay. And any parent who's here knows the connection between these two things. Are you listening to me? Are you listening to me? Yes, I'm listening. Go do it. And so... Uh, I, those are, that's my mom's side of the conversation. And then the other side of the conversation was, why do I have to, or all the other reasons. But obedience and hearing are connected. In fact, it's even part of the word that obedience is to listen and respond, or we'll get it wrong. So Abraham did that. And I want to suggest to you in a few scriptures that he was not only obedient, but he was promptly obedient. You know the difference of that is? Is that there is an obedience that is reluctant. I don't want to do this. I'm going to procrastinate and obey. I don't want to do it right now. I don't like this. I'm going to find a reason not to. I'm going to find a loophole. I'm going to find a scripture that tells me I don't have to. You know what I mean? So we work through some of these things. But Abraham promptly obeyed. Philo of Alexandria, he's a, he was a Jewish man contemporary to Jesus. He said of this of Abraham, impelled by an oracle calling him to leave his native land and family and paternal home and move to another country, he made eager haste to do so, considering that that speed in giving effect to the command was as good as full accomplishment. He figured that if I can, if I can do this in a hurry, that it's going to bring about the accomplishment of God's promise quicker. Think of that. Prompt obedience. Think of the importance of that. Genesis chapter 22, verse 1 through 5, the Bible says that sometime later God tested Abraham and he said, Abraham, and Abraham said, Here I am. And then God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Pause here for a moment and let's think about this for a second. Was that his only son? Literally speaking? No. Figuratively speaking? Yeah, because what happened to the other one? Send him away. Bring your son, your only son, 
to the mountain that I, and offer him as a burnt offering on the, the mountain that I will show you. Verse 3, listen. How many get excited about that kind of command? Verse 3, early the next morning, Abraham got up and he loaded his donkey and he took with him two servants and his son Isaac. And when he cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham took him up and saw the place in the distance, and he said to the servants, Stay here with the donkey while I go, I and the boy go up there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. There's some, there's some nuance in all of that that's really beautiful. But the thing I, I wanted to really point out uh, to us today is that he was prompt in doing that. Somebody had suggested that he got up early so he could get out of there before Sarah woke up. <laughs> That's probably a good idea, but I don't think that's the real reason. There's other reasons involved in that, and I think it has something to do with Abraham's desire to promptly obey, to obey quickly what God's asked him to do. And I know that because on another occasion, just in the chapter previous to this, we already talked about it, that Sarah was saying we need to send away Ishmael. And Abraham didn't want to do it, and he had a little wrestling match with the Lord about it, and the Lord said, listen to her. This is not the son that I'm going to bless in that way. And so what does it say in chapter 21, verse 14? Early the next morning, Abraham sent Ishmael away after God had promised to be with him. Early the next morning. What does that tell us? That tells us that Abraham is prompt in his obedience. I would encourage you because one of the things that can happen is that the longer you wait to obey God, the more likely you are to talk yourself out of it. If you wait, the devil's going to give you lots of reasons why that's not what God's saying. Okay, you understand what I mean by that. And then uh, the longer you wait, the more likely you will be to miss an opportunity. Maybe God is calling you to witness to somebody, and you're like, I will. And you wait, and what if they died? Because you might miss an opportunity. You didn't get to it. Well, dodged a bullet there. That's not the right kind of attitude to obedience. Now, this statement has to be balanced with uh, making sure that you've really heard from God and are not presuming. See, I know how tricky it is in trying to hear from God and, and listening to God that sometimes we can get a quick idea and we can just run with it. I'm not talking about any kind of presumption or hastiness in regarding to hearing from God. I'm talking about when you know, then the proper response is quick obedience. See, because the alternative side of this is that there have been people who've rushed out trying to do God's will, and they've presumed upon something, they've made mistakes. Abraham did that with Hagar, right? He got ahead of God's plan. He didn't wait and hear from God specifically on that. He took somebody else's soundingly spiritual advice instead of waiting upon God, and we have a whole nation we have, a, uh, we have a cosmic war that's taking place now because of that presumption and haste, right? Like God didn't tell him, go into Hagar and sleep with her and produce the child that way. But he presumed and he got it wrong, okay? It wasn't that he wasn't believing God was going to provide him an heir. It was that he was wrong in going that way about it. You understand the difference? And so we need to wait and make sure we hear from God because I can tell you 
than in times of ministry and just growing up in the church, that it's tricky sometimes to distinguish between what we want and what God wants. Sometimes we superimpose our will on God's will, and then we do the sinful thing by saying God said. Do you hear, do you hear what I'm saying? That we can sometimes want something bad enough that we assume God is the one saying it. And we better be very clear because that's akin to taking God's name in vain. When we say God said when he never said. And so I've come across a few people who have confused what they wanted with God's will. One of those people is preaching this morning. But once you've clearly discerned direction and and there might be a timing to it, go God's way in God's timing, and I think we'll learn to discern better the longer we walk with God and obey Him. But quick obedience is always best. Once you know this is what God has said, let's do it right away. Like, you don't have to wait to pray, right? You can do that right away. We know, we know things like that. We can do that right away. The third thing that I'd like to mention this morning, I'm going to go quickly on these, but the third thing is that he turned away, okay? Abraham believed against hope. Abraham obeyed promptly. Abraham turned away, okay? People of faith are always turning away. Uh, you're going to ask how, and that's what we're going to get to. In Genesis 12:1, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to a land that I will show you. He turned away from his past. He turned away from what was familiar. He turned away from yesterday, and he turned to move forward in God's plan. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8 says this, literally, when it says he left his own country, it says he went out. He went out. Okay? To went out means departure, means leaving something behind. He's, he's leaving something behind. And I think it's notable that it should also say that he obeyed and went even though he didn't know where he was going. Don't you? Like, he's turning away from something without knowing fully what he's turning to, except that he knows God is there. This is the great challenge of faith. Tim Enlow, once I remember him saying one time, faith is spelled R-I-S-K. Risk. You're taking a chance. All of life's a gamble. Anytime you make a choice between two things, there's always a trade-off. Okay? And when you're, you're risking, either way, if you don't trust God, you're risking his judgment. If you do trust God, you're risking, what if he doesn't show up the way that I think he will? Which is a better bet? It's a question as we think about this. He turned away. He didn't know what he, he was fully turning to except that he was turning to God and his promises. He didn't know what the land looked like. I know I've said this a hundred times, but you know what? Abraham was leaving in Ur was the most advanced of the world's civilization at that time. He was leaving it all to go live in tents. They've excavated Ur. They found that people had little streams running through their houses where they could go to the bathroom. Indoor plumbing. Back in Ur of the Chaldees, can you believe that? Jewelry like we, like we don't even imagine, like something from the 1920s. Beautiful things like that, advanced culture, highly developed society and civilization that would eventually give birth to the Babylonians. Okay, All of that is there. And what do you do? He said, nope, I'm leaving all of that, and I'm going to go follow God out in the wilderness somewhere. 
and of course he encountered other civilizations, but he turned away from probably an established home to go live in a tent. And that to me is amazing again and again. Every time I stay in a tent overnight, I think I can't wait to get back home. Anybody with me on that? This is fine for a night or two. I want to get back to established, civilized living. Abraham turns away from things like that to go out, to follow after God. Quickly, we we must go on. I, I think that's an important part of the story. Victor Hamilton says in his commentary on this, how does God break into a person's life where there have been few or no John the Baptist to prepare the way? Abraham was cradled in a world of polytheism and idolatry. His father, Terah, appropriately traveled from Ur to Haran, for both were ancient centers for the worship of the moon god Sin. You think about this, not only is Abraham turning away from everything familiar, he's turning away from false religion. This is the constant call as we follow God. You know that there's an ever- uh, narrowing focus upon the things of God and turning away from things that are unnecessary and things that are wrong. We pursue him. And, and so Abraham turned away from all of that. What kind of threat would that have provided to his life? You know, what is interesting is that what broke into Abraham's life is the belief in one God. Out of a polytheistic culture, how does that happen? He encountered the one true God. Now, Abraham was leaving. He was forced to separate from his favorite nephew in time. In time, he had to let go of Ishmael. He was told to sacrifice Isaac. He wouldn't ultimately lose him. But all of these are forms of being willing to turn away for the one worth fully turning to. And I think that's what God calls us to. If we're not willing to turn away, perhaps it's a statement that we don't value that God's enough to turn to. You with me? If we're not willing to turn away from our sin, maybe there's a subtext to that that says, I think that's more valuable than God. All of these forms of turning away is really about turning to. Now, when we talk about turning away, I'm not telling us or suggesting anything like leaving responsibilities that we have to to home and family. I do think following God will require us to turn away from some things. We have to turn away from sin to God. That's the prophetic summary of the Old Testament prophets all the way up to John the Baptist is turn from your sins. The Hebrew word is shub, turn, 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 over and over again. Go look in your uh, concordance and find how many times in the Old Testament the word turn is there. It's a call to repent. It's a call to turn away. And, and there's a very visual metaphor in that, that the life of faith was seen as a walk with God. And so if we're going on the wrong path, we have to turn off of that path and turn towards God. So there's a turning that needs to take place in our lives. That's what uh, in the New Testament repentance is about. It's a change. It's a turn. It's a turning of the mind away from the old way of thinking towards the things of God. And as our mind changes and our our lives focus upon God, our direction in life changes. And if that hasn't happened, perhaps that's a statement that we've not truly repented. Second, I think that God requires us to leave behind people who are holding us back. I don't mean your spouse and kids, so don't go off on a deep end here. But you you may find that you've got friends that are holding you back 
other people who are bad influences on your life. People, the Bible says bad company corrupts good morals. And if we're living within those influences, it might be dangerous enough that we're not influencing them, they're influencing us. Now, I think the ideal Christian life is that we ought to be the influencer everywhere we go. And so that means that we ought to, at times, when we're mature enough, be around people that we're influencing, that are not fully on board. But if you're finding yourself slipping, it might be time to turn away from those, to leave those behind till we can get strong enough to be the kind of influence we may need to be. And here's the other thing, is that some people might not be the people that you're supposed to influence. It might be for somebody else to do that. You with me? Third, we have to give up some of the places of comfort that we retreat to and live vulnerably before God. Abraham, just like us, have these places of comfort that this is your spot you go to when you're having a bad day. and The place where you can find that, all right, this life's hard right now. You know what I'd really like to do is crawl up in my recliner, kick the shoes off, put a blanket over me, and watch some TV. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? If that's not you, what is your place of comfort? Figure that out. And let me suggest to you that there are times that God asks us to abandon our, our borders or our boundaries of comfort. He says, step outside of that. Well, I'm not a people person. God might call you to do something that's not people, that's, that's people-oriented, even though you're not a people person. So he might call you outside your comfort zone. Say, nope, I'm not going to let you sit back comfortably. You're mine, <laughs> right? And we do belong to him. And I think that you're suited for this, even though you don't feel like you are. And perhaps the very fact that you don't feel comfortable in it might be the way that God is going to use you. So we have to ask, Lord, would you use us in these places? Often people are not comfortable, but God has us living out on the razor's edge of adventure all the time, doesn't he, if we're trusting in him? We never know what he might ask us to do, and it's exciting. It also can be a little bit scary, and if you're prone to comfort zones, you might need to get a new concept of life because it's not about us. Let's be comfortable in God, okay? And that means whatever he's leading us to, we'll be comfortable there, even if we're not immediately comfortable. There's a day when he'll wipe every tear from our eye and say, if you feel bad about it, God God will wipe the tear from your eye and help you get over it in eternity, and you'll see what it's all worth, why it was all worth it. And then the fourth thing is we might need to ignore some of the potential stealers in our lives. There are things that are that are stealing from us, spirituality. These might not be so bad as sin. They might just be time wasters. Hebrews talks about, uh, about sins and things that uh, entangle us. That they may not be, there may not be exactly be sin, but they're keeping you from being your potential in God. And we might need to, if we're going to walk the life of faith, turn away from those things. See, it takes faith to do all that. It takes faith to turn away from something that we have for something we don't yet possess in its fullness. Turn away from Ur, and I don't yet possess the promised land. And in fact, I'm not even going to tell you. I'm just going to say, walk with me, and we'll get there. That's a big step of faith. Can we take it? Finally, I'd like you to notice that Abraham worshipped everywhere. Abraham worshipped everywhere. He, He believed against hope. He obeyed promptly. He turned away 
from things that God was calling him to turn away from, and he worshiped everywhere he went. Genesis 12, verse 6 through 8, Abraham traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of, uh, of Morah at Shechem. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he went on toward the hills east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the east and Ai, or excuse me, on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. So what's in common with those verses? It seems that everywhere Abraham went, he was building some kind of altar. Now, we don't exactly relate to this because we don't build altars like that to worship. But what that was was him worshiping the Lord wherever he went. That's important. See, Genesis mentions Abraham's connection to altars three more times. Once it says he returned to an altar that he'd previously built in chapter 13, verse 4. And then he builds another altar in chapter 13, verse 18. And then the final altar he builds in the Genesis story, there could be periods of silence where he's building altars we don't know about, but the final one that we know about is on Mount Moriah where he sacrificed Isaac, or he was going to. He doesn't, he doesn't sacrifice him, you know. But he builds, builds an altar there, and the Lord interrupts it and provides another alternative God teaches him more about altars than he ever knew before. And so what this tells us, Abraham is a worshiper. He worshiped differently than we do. As I said, we don't have to construct altars, thank God, and sacrifice animals. That's all been accomplished for us in Jesus, which I think is what the sacrifice of Isaac was intended to reenact or enact for us. The future sacrifice of a later son of Abraham and son of God, Jesus so we don't worship exactly in that way. But what I do notice is how New Testament his worship was in some ways. See, it's a very later period, Old Testament thing, to have to go to a certain location to worship. It's a very Christian thing to worship wherever you are. And Abraham did that. He didn't have to go to Jerusalem he didn't, in fact, they didn't possess Jerusalem during that time. He didn't have to go to some other holy site. He didn't have to return to Ur. He didn't have to go to some other holy place where God had met with him. Wherever he was, he was building altars and worshiping the Lord, and that's God's call. It's very New Testament. Worship is wherever he is, and he understands God is there, even in a land of heathen, of Canaanites and all of their false gods. He says, we will worship. I will worship here. I know there's Canaanites that can probably hear me right now. They're not far off. I know this land's probably been dedicated to all of their gods. I don't care. This is my place to worship God because God is the God of everywhere. And so he worshiped. I think this surpasses how some of us live out our lives. We reserve it all for Sunday. Come on Sunday and worship the Lord. Or Wednesday or when I get into the building. And I think this comes from the kind of faith, what Abraham has, a kind of faith that he believes that God's world is a God, it's a God-filled world, and anywhere he is is a place of worship to the Lord. I think one thing that worship will do in, in the way that Abraham did it is it's an acknowledgement that God is always before us. And if there's one thing that gets us into trouble is when we think we depart from God's presence. You with me? Like if I, I feel I've got to be really holy at church. I just heard it the other day. 
not somebody from this church, but I heard it. We can't lie. We're in church. Well, you realize church goes with you if you're a Christian (laughs) everywhere. It's just as bad to lie out there as it is in here. Maybe worse because it's showing that we have bad theology too. You see what I mean? Abraham, God is always before him. If we can live a life like that, that's the life of faith he's calling us to. One of the things that occurs to me is that God can lead us into the future that we're rarely prepared to meet. And oftentimes that relies upon the decisions we're making today. We just think God's going to bring us into the future and then we'll just be ready for it. But if Abraham hadn't left Ur, he's not going to ever come to the promised land. There's a sequence to all of this. And today's decisions affect tomorrow's destinations. Are you with me? And so we're kind of sowing to our future. I would ask, what kind of seed are you sowing? When you're a kid, your parents are doing that for you, hopefully. Making you make the good grades when you don't understand why that's important. You're going to go do it. I wish my parents had uh, done that more. I've been saying that lately. But it's only because I find studying so frustrating at times. But I I tell you, um, I was thinking about this. I had a treehouse in my backyard in Kansas when I was growing up. Kansas, I know you're not going to believe this, but it's a lot different from Alaska. There's not mountains, and it's really windy, and not a lot of trees, and there's no bears, as far as I know. But I lived in a little suburban community right outside of Wichita. And we had a tree house, and it was built next to a walnut tree, and I was thinking about playing in that backyard when I was a little kid and imagining we always, let's pretend. That's what we often said, let's pretend. Okay, and we were pretending to go somewhere far away. We're fighting in battles. Um, I never in my wildest dreams considered that I would ever end up in Alaska. But do you know what? My mom and dad made me go to church. They said, you need to go. We need to teach you the word of God. We're going to pray. We're going to live godly as a family. And they invested all of that in me. They sent me to Christian school, a Bible class. I went to church when I thought it was super boring. Okay, you might sympathize with that. But that's how I felt. But you know what happened is over time, God was making installments into my future in that. And my parents in faith believed it. My mom prayed. I remember when I was 18, I told her, I played this. It was kind of a corny moment, but I played this song from For Him where it's uh, talking about when it's time to go. you got to let me go away. And I felt God had called me. I didn't know where to. I always imagined I was going to be right there. In fact, my, my dad said one time, he knew I was called to ministry, there's a funeral home in our town that used to be a church. And that's a shame that a church should ever become a funeral home. You need to go pastor that church. So imagine that's what I was going to do was pastor that church. Didn't work out that way. One thing led to another. And in 2001, we came to Alaska and God's great adventure for us how exciting it was. I never would have imagined in my wildest dreams. But that starts with a faith step from parents who invested in me. And then a step of faith when we felt God was calling us to do a certain thing. We didn't want to, I asked when we, I knew nothing about Alaska. I asked uh, those who were recruiting us to come. 
do you guys have McDonald's? Now I couldn't care less. <laughs> I just wanted to know what kind of civilization was here because I had no concept of it. To me, it might have been it might have been Canaan. You know what I mean? But there's a step of faith that's taken, and when it's taken, God meets us in it. It's not all easy, but He calls us to a life of faith. And I'm sure we're all living with some different realities in life, some joys, some regrets. Abraham had all of that too. He had joys and regrets. But the God who stands between us all is the same God. And even though I didn't have a vision, if you, if you trust God, you don't know where he's leading you. If you'll walk with him, he'll lead you where he needs you to go. And that, I think, is his call to us. And I think you can make a case that we have it easier today because we have the scriptures. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the biographies of great people of God in Scripture and otherwise. And we have the events of the past, which are God's track record. Think of that. Abraham didn't have that. What great faith it must have taken. And what that does is it challenges me that we're without excuse when it comes to these things. If he can do it with so much less, how much more could we do in him? I'm not suggesting you're going to be the new Abraham. I'm saying let his faith challenge us to be greater people of faith as we walk with God in these areas. Philo of Alexandria said of a virtue-loving soul, of Abraham, that he was a virtue-loving soul in quest for the true God. And that, I think, is what anybody who does these things will be. He worshiped everywhere he went. He turned away from those things in his life that would hold the vision back. He obeyed promptly. And he believed against hope. What kind of Christian will you be? Amen. Let's stand. Thanks for your gracious attention today. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.